I'm Andrew Constantine, and this is A Stick With A Point. A little break with the regular format this week as I interview an active performer. But it's someone who makes his living, for the main part at least, in the orchestral world. Although it's a rather longer interview than usual, it's got many fascinating moments, both of self-analysis, outlining what can be a tortuous route to a great career, and the sacrifices that are often made to get there. Occasionally it's rather dark, and at others really thought-provoking and stimulating. See what you think. Robert Domain, thank you very much for joining me today on A Stick With A Point. And Robert, uh, you and I have worked together before uh, as soloist and conductor, but you have a, a very particular role um, as, your, as your day job, as it were. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, hello, everyone. And thank you, Andrew, for having me on, on the show. Yes, I am. Uh, I'm a cellist, a musician, uh, I think. And I'm principal cellist of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. And I have uh, been in this position for the last uh, eight years. Prior to that, I was principal cello in, uh, in the Detroit Symphony for a decade. And so I've been doing this for a while. And uh, I, I do have a lot to say about it. I just <laughs> don't know exactly where to start because uh, I might need a little bit of prompting. Well, I'm I'm happy to prompt Bob, and um, um, maybe you can you can tell us just a little bit first of all about your cello path. I mean, why do you play the cello? How did it happen? Well, I'll try to do this in a in a in a nutshell. I, I come from a pretty musical family. Um, nobody uh, was a professional musician. Nobody uh, hung their shingle as a as a pro, uh, but everybody played uh, an instrument in my my immediate family. Uh, we all played piano. And another instrument that was just sort of a de rigueur in my family. And uh, my father had played the French horn when he was a kid, and my my mom was an excellent cellist. Uh, and uh, and her father was a cellist, and his father was also an, an amateur cellist. So there's a, a strong predilection for for music in in my family. Did your mom start you off on the cello? My mom always liked to take credit for that but it was really my mm. sister my oldest sister uh mary who whom i i idolized and and i still do she is just one of the best people um and i used to sneak into her practice space just to goof off with her when i was a little kid i was probably three or four years old and then she brought me up on the on the chair uh her chair and she said do you want to do you want to play the cello i said sure let me do that so i get up i get up there and and she taught me what I can't say the name of the song, but she was working on the block prayer and we, and she put funny words to it and the, on the mm. uh, C string passage. Um, and, uh, I was hooked. I was totally hooked on the cello. So Mary kind of gave me the basics and I didn't, I didn't really start, uh, getting serious about the cello until, uh, I was in elementary school and in third grade, we were all able to choose an instrument uh, back in the public school system in Oklahoma City, where I grew up. And uh, of course, I, I just already played the cello. And 
at that point I was already, you know, pretty accomplished. And, uh, but then the, the teacher, uh, of the class, a man named Lowell Russell, who passed away quite a long time ago, he recognized that, that I had, I had a talent and, uh, contacted a teacher who took me right away. And then after that, I was just off to the races. It was, it was, a uh, pretty apparent that I had something that, that was, that was special and needed to be, needed to be looked at, you know, something to develop, if that makes mm. sense. But music yeah, was always like a really big, big part of my upbringing. You know, we, we all, like I say, we all took piano lessons. We all, um, it was expected of us, but not to go into it as a vocation, only as an avocation, um, if that makes sense. So, like, yeah. So, how did you escape that? How did you how did you direct the line so it was going to become your life? Well, my dad um, was uh, an ex-military, his career military, he was a captain in the um, in the U.S. Army. Uh, he was uh, stationed in Europe during the the Korean War, and my dad kind of had other visions and plans for his son. You know, first of all, they were thrilled that they had a son after having three daughters. And, and my dad just, he wanted me to follow in his footsteps and, and join the army. And when he recognized that, that I had some talent and uh, he was conflicted because he uh, definitely thought that um, a more macho path, I think was, uh, was appropriate for me. I did sports. I played, I was a really good baseball player and uh, I really would have loved to have pursued that, but I did not have that kind of athletic ability. So it was baseball and the cello and the cello, of course, won out. And uh, I, I was introduced to some pretty important teachers at some important schools very early on when I was uh, 12 and 13. Um, I had been accepted to study at uh, at Curtis and uh, and Juilliard, and Leonard Rose wanted me to come study with him at Juilliard. Uh, whether I studied at Curtis or not, I would have have taken the train into New York and taken lessons with Mr. Rose, who had already been diagnosed with uh, leukemia at the time, so he didn't have that much longer to live. We, of course, we didn't know that then. He he would have only had. Uh, two more years to live. So my parents uh, did not agree um, to let me study because I would have had to live with a host family and, and all of that was being arranged and uh, it just, it did not, it did not work out. They, they wanted me to finish my schooling uh, back home and just take lessons with, with Jane Smith, my, uh, my teacher who, whom in addition to my sister, I owe Jane everything everything. I mean, she gave me a complete musical education. And like when I, uh, after I came back to the cello, I, I had quit the cello for a couple of years in my teen years as a sort of a form of rebellion because, you know, my parents didn't let me go away to school. My dream was quashed. And I just, you know, thought I would, uh, <laughs> be a teenager for a little while. And, um, I, um, after, after a while, um, I'm sorry to go on and on about this, but I, uh, 
I had said that I, I wanted to go to college with my 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 friends who uh, we were a tight circle of, of of buddies and it's sort of like goodwill hunting styles it's very strange my my uh um my best friend at the time brian weathers he's a cop in edmond oklahoma now he's a police officer and he he said if you if you if you go to osu with the rest of us i'll kill you he said you've got to go to music school so there was only one school that i i was interested in it was eastman because of the reputation of the cello cello studio. And I thought, ah, I'm going to be the worst one there. And I auditioned. I didn't even fly to Rochester for the audition. I couldn't afford it because my, my, my father at the time was, was dying of cancer and my mother had a stroke. So it was Mm. a pretty miserable time. Um, we were about to lose our house and I didn't even know if I was going, going away to college or not. Um, and I did one of these, auditions on a reel to reel uh tape i remember it like it was yesterday it was at a music store in dallas winecrantz music i think it was a violin dealer and uh about a week later i heard back and they were giving me a full ride uh to eastman they, they were like please come to eastman <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna give you steve doan as a teacher wow. and I, I didn't know anything about mr doan i mm-hmm. absolutely nothing and i I just thought, well, you know, I guess I'll do this. But I was so torn because, I mean, I had a girlfriend in high school and we were going to be saying goodbye to each other. And and uh, my my dad was very, very ill. And uh, he wanted me to go away. He was at peace with it, with me going into music, like at the very, oh, sorry. <laughs> I just got, I just blindsided myself. Jesus, sorry. No, don't worry. This is... Um... Um, this is very telling stuff, and and uh, I'm I'm sorry to no. It just no. I, I I'm I'm talking. <laughs> no, my dad yeah. finally, you know, like basically on his deathbed, gave me his blessing, and he apologized to me. Apologized. Well, mm. he's seventy pounds and skeletal, saying he's sorry. He was, he was how he was, and I was just, you know, devastated by that. But 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 heartened at the same time that he he didn't regret. <laughs> that that I I was a, a musician. He was proud of me. Although he could only tolerate two different pieces of music uh, being played by me in the house. We didn't have a piano in the house anymore, or if we, ever. I don't think we ever did. Uh, when I was growing up, I had to practice piano at church, which was a few blocks away. But I I used to go there, and I'd uh, my piano teacher would have me play piano and organ, and so I I can kind of navigate my way around the pedals and stuff. But um, I, um, yeah, so he, the two pieces that he would tolerate were Oh Holy Night, which he loved. And he, I, he knew, he knew the words in, in the original language. Um, and, uh, I think he had learned, learned it when he was, uh, in the service, when he was over in, in Europe and, uh, and Rococo variations. He loved that piece. He'd say, play that again, play, play the theme again, that the beginning part. So I'd play it and cajole my dad. He absolutely loved it. But uh, so, hey Bob, I see, I see you have a smile on your face at the moment, and I'm glad we've turned this around. But you know, your 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 father must have been immensely proud of you because you're underplaying this a little bit and being a little matter of fact. But it's obvious that he knew he had a, an incredibly talented, gifted son, and although he knew he wasn't going to see it blossom, he was obviously very, very proud of you. 
and um, and you've you've lived up to all of that. You've you've achieved so much, and we're going to get into that in a moment. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna distract you and try and uh, yeah 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 no I'm and, I'm and move you I, forward. I've gone down a, a, a very strange rabbit hole for a second, but uh, yeah. just just to kind of wrap it up um, a bit, I th I think my um, my dad was was at peace with the fact that I mean I remember when uh, he met Mr. Rose for the first mm -hmm. time, Leonard Rose. And they went into a room. I, it was after Rose played Rococo Variations with, with the Eastern Music Festival Orchestra. Uh, and that's um, that's where I'd met uh, Leonard Rose when I was 12, back in 1982. And he talked to my dad and said, your son needs to come study with me at Juilliard. Like, right now. Right now. He needs Juilliard pre-college. I'm... We're going to take care of everything. And my, my dad, he talked to my dad on a certain kind of, like we would describe now as like a bro level. You know, mm -hmm. they, I mean, he came, my dad came out of there super impressed by, by Leonard Rose. And, and he was 10 years older than my dad too. So my dad, his opinion of me being a musician actually brightened a bit. And he, I think he considered that and my my mother the problem with my mother is that she was insanely jealous that she wanted that type of attention and career and a lot of what she did and said was was quite like my therapist would say uh, envy driven like we all do things that are envy driven but um particularly you know a, a parent who <laughs> who who's like taking credit for setting you up uh and you get the musical talent from me, my side of the family, all that stuff. Yet, um, at the same time, telling me, and this is the phrase that she would always use, and it still haunts me. It's like, you'll never be anything but a two-bit cellist. You'll never be anything. But, it's just that those words, you know, coming from a parent. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, I, I have two children. They're both teenagers. And they're both in that frigging asteroid field of their teenage years. It's like, buckle up. It's hard on everyone. And uh, I I know I was difficult as a teenager, but man, I I cannot. My daughter and my son, they're, they're our replacements. You know, <laughs> I want to do everything great for them. I'm, I'm so I'm very careful not to do the things that my mom and dad uh did to, to me and my sisters. I mean, it's a, yeah. I mean, it's, um, I didn't expect to, I'm sorry if, if I'm, if I'm meandering a bit, but, um, well, you've, you've gone a little maudlin and I don't, um, I don't want you to do that because, um, no, it's okay. I, I want you, I want you to obviously to, to reflect on, on this part of your development. It's, um, it's obviously very dramatic for you and it's very revealing and I'm trying to add it all up into the person I know and admire now see where it came from i want to leap if i may from all of those formative years and that wonderful train you had very early in life and a great preparation um that set you on the path to where you are now which is as you said principal cellist of the los angeles philharmonic and before that uh, principal cellist in detroit which is where i remember first seeing you on a television broadcast um uh, doing william tell overture and i thought oh how about oh, that I want to work with that guy. He's um, he's pretty special. And I don't know how we came together, but um, um, my my early impressions were totally vindicated when we uh, 
uh, did the uh, the barber concerto together. That was that was fantastic. But you're going to tell us now about all of that training and how you utilize that in the in the responsibilities you have and the roles you have as a as a principal player, as a section leader, as a section leader of great cellists in a great orchestra of other fabulous musicians. How, how do you do that? What are the challenges for you? Well, in L.A., uh, my section, I say my section, I, 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 don't, I don't like to <laughs> say it as though it's my, it's my item or, or something that, that, that belongs to me. They are individually brilliant musicians, brilliant people, Detroit as well. Um, and in, in the L.A. Phil, um, I really, truly do feel, and, and I, I think I treat my section as, as though I'm first among, among equals. And I trust them. I don't, <laughs> I don't stand up and shout anything at them. I don't, I don't uh, demonstrate, this is how I want it. Or, you know, I try to lead by example first. And if something is still wrong, then I will subtly pass back a message. But in terms of uh, like how I view my, my, my colleagues, I, I can always, I can pick out individuals always. Like if I focus, I can hear, I can hear such and such person. I can hear this person. I can see, hear that person. And if, if there's ever anything that uh, troubles me or pleases me, I will let that person know in, you know, in a very discreet manner. Um, I, I have, I have the same view of like my section that a good conductor views his orchestra or her orchestra, um, that the great ones let the orchestra play. They trust their orchestra. They don't micromanage all the time. They might micromanage a little bit in rehearsal and then let go more in the concert. Uh, that's sort of like, like, you know, if I, if worked with Herbert Blumstedt a lot, uh, Zubin Mehta a lot. And those two examples come, come to my mind where they, it's not that they're detached at all, but they, they, they trust the orchestra. And, um, I, I like to think that, that I have a similar relationship with, with the sections that I've, I've led. I've always led by example. And, you know, there are, principals of other sections who feel the need to constantly badger or constantly make suggestions. And, you know, I find that to be, um, personally, I find it insulting, uh, because these are very accomplished people you're talking to. Mm -hmm. And this isn't youth orchestra. These are professionals and to earn their respect, you have to respect them. And uh, I mean, and they know when you don't. Well, and they took and then, they took yeah. a chance on me when they hired me. You know, it's like we're going to give you this. We are giving you this because we trust you. So I have to reciprocate. I must. And uh, you know, even though you know I've gone through some some challenging times, uh, even since I I came to L.A., just personal things. Uh, I have still always trusted and always treasured um my colleagues and i can't tell them enough just how how much i i uh i respect them 
So there are several aspects of of the role there as principal cellist, aren't there? There's the leadership of your your own team, your own group. Then there's the interaction you have to have with other players and directed through the other principal players, I imagine, particularly in the strings. Mm-hmm. And then the interaction you have with the conductor. And it's um, plus there's some administrative great... work at Boeing's and and stuff like that. So yeah, let's get yeah. to that in a moment yeah. though. But I, I'm I'm intrigued by the the psychological approach that you must have to take as an intelligent principal, as a proactive principal, the the person who realizes that it's the trust of your colleagues behind you, and then the interaction with the people around you and ahead of you. Um, uh, is that something you consciously develop or consciously manipulate in your own mind, or do you think it it comes naturally. Or are you not very good at it, Bob? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, there's a lot of on-the-job training. There's a lot that you mm-hmm. figure. There's no manual. It's like having a kid. You know, how do you do this? I don't know. <laughs> you figure it out on the fly. So I had been doing this for quite some time before I even got the Detroit job. I My first job was in the Rochester Philharmonic. I was lucky to win a position uh, as a sub first um, when I was a freshman at Eastman. And I was I needed to make money. I, I had no idea what kind of job I was going to get. I, because uh, my parents, you know, they were broke and broke in. And I had had some sponsorship from, um, from a Catholic priest who had, uh, had been, he gave me my first communion and he was a music lover. Uh, and, uh, but that, that, um, that ended. Um, so I had to get a job. My parents were pressuring me um, and um, said, well, you're not going to be able to afford to stay there if you can't, blah, blah, blah. And so so I'm, I'm, of course, I'll, I'll do anything. I had a, <laughs> I had a, a uh, interview to be a security guard <laughs> at Pinkerton Security, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the things were, were outrageous. But then there was a, a sub position open in the Rochester Philharmonic, and I prepared for it. I had no idea how to prepare for an audition like that, but I got it. And the school was a buzz. It was like, oh my God, Bobby got, he beat out like everyone for that job. And, and people were ups- very upset <laughs> that this kid comes in there, this toe headed blonde kid from Oklahoma comes in and just says, Hey, I'll do that. <laughs> sure. I can do that. And, uh, so I, I, I played quite a bit with them and I, I cut my eye teeth there. And I remember the very first concert I played. They did a um, Mark Elder, Sir Mark Elder. He was not a Sir back then. Uh, I think he was just Mark Elder. He was music director. And boy, Rochester Philharmonic was so lucky. I thought he was great. Uh, I, I know in any orchestra, there are going to be people who like, who don't like. Uh, it's junior high school. Anyway, uh, did I just say that out loud? I think I did. We did a... Uh, just a concert version of the first act of Die Valkyrie. And from the very first, every hair follicle, I had some back then, but every hair follicle on my body stood up straight. I was like, O-M-F-G. <laughs> it was like the most overwhelming moment of my, of my orchestra experience. Cause I had, I'd soloed with a bunch of orchestras when I was younger and, you know, I thought, oh, that ship has sailed because you got to be, you know, still doing that after you're 12. <laughs> you can't take a break. I, 
I, I loved playing playing in, a, in a, a real orchestra and boy, they were good, really, really good. So I did that. I also worked at the school library and, and uh, after after Eastman, I went to study at Yale with Aldo Pariso. And uh, I again, I had to get a job. I brought my mom with me. My father had passed away right after Thanksgiving of my freshman year. So uh, we buried my dad and then I brought my mom with me to Connecticut to live. I tried to take care of my mom. It was really, really difficult. But um, the Hartford Symphony principal uh, spot was open and uh, it was the core core principal of the orchestra. I took the audition. I got the job and and uh, and then I, I got a lot of experience playing um, you know, I got to play all the solos. I got to play all the big pieces and I played some concertos with the orchestra and they treated me really well in, in Hartford. And I kind of got lazy because I expected, I expected my solo stuff to take off because I had a manager in New York and, and auditions were being set up with conductors. And, and, uh, I, I thought that that was going to be the path. I expected that to be the path. That's what I wanted. Uh, but it ended up not working out so well. I mean, there were a good number of things in my personal life that w went sour and I had some struggles there. We can, we can always talk about that if you want, but uh, I, after, after sort of straightening out my act uh, back in Connecticut, I uh, got myself together and I, I auditioned for principal cello of the Detroit symphony. And I have to, I have to credit my wife, Betsy, um, she was always the one who, in her own quiet way, I mean, she always said to me, Robert, you need to be your own cheerleader, you know, because I'm always needing to be propped up by her. And I'm like, oh, can you tell is me how Is she a I musician? Sound? She is. She's a French horn player. Um, and she's quite a good pianist, even though she downplays her abilities. She's she's the best. I mean, Betsy, um, <laughs> Betsy would always have this gem of a thing to say to me that would motivate me and there was one time this is right before the la audition i i was pulling an all-nighter because i had not practiced my music for la but i was in really good shape yeah, I that just, sounds like you bob I, <laughs> I had just recorded the john williams cello concerto so i was in good shape that thing <laughs> is acrobatic like in a way that that i've never played i mean I, the thing was written for yo-yo and his like huge stretches that he has with his hands and i sort of had to cultivate that and my my uh, my sausage fingers but uh when i was practicing in the guest room of our house in, in gross point uh it's like 3 15 4 o'clock i had to catch a 10 a.m flight to la so i had to get you know packed up and, and and go to the airport and betsy came out to check on me and and go to the bathroom or whatever. And she came back out of the, out, out of the bathroom and, and she came and she said, how are you doing? I said, I don't, I don't know if I should get on the plane. And she's like, Robert, she looks at me with these like unblinking, the hugest blue eyes you've ever seen. And she says, I, <laughs> this is so moving to me because it just, it really, she doesn't see it that way because like, you know, nobody ever does when they, when they say something that's like a mic drop moment to a, another person or a loved one, especially that, it had that much of an impact. She said, Robert, I was mentally preparing the garage sale while you were practicing. <laughs> and I, that, 
made me feel so it filled me with confidence. I felt so good about about how I was just about everything. And, and I went out there and, you know, anyway, the rest is history. But uh, I I really screwed up my hand <laughs> on that. I had to uh, in the, uh, the 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 semifinal round. I couldn't move my left hand. And I, I told them, I said, I'm just going to leave. And they said, we have a vacancy. Somebody dropped out tomorrow. They said, if you want it, take it. If your hand doesn't work, then we understand. We're sorry. But the committee would be really upset if you didn't, you know, play. So I rested. I slept for 15 hours without even as much of a bathroom break. Did not wake up for 15 hours. And uh, <laughs> my hand was much better the next day. But I was very ginger with it warming up. Boy. It I imagine being, when you do those sort of auditions, Rob, that um, there are not only a lot of people there, but they're, they're kind of handpicked and you, you must know, I mean, without mentioning names, you must know these folks and you know that they're all great players as well. Does that? Oh, yeah. Everyone's qualified. You know, yeah. everyone is qualified. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a certain amount of good fortune that, that's involved. Of course there is. I mean, you'd be lying to yourself if you thought, if you said, oh, well, I'm number one. Well, yeah, that day maybe in some people's opinions, but. Yeah, that that I try not to let that enter my mind. The the best the successes that I've had in my life have almost always been where I didn't think that I had a any skin in the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where I thought, like in the the Irving Klein competition, uh, when I won that in 1990, oh man, I was a child, uh, and I went on on stage in the first round, started my Bach Prelude. After three measures, I was lost. I had no idea where I was. Stopped. I almost left. But I stayed. And I started at the first cadence in F major. It's the D minor prelude. And that's what, that's an easy one to lose your place. And as you know, when you lose your place in Bach, you have to start over. Because there's no no way. Yeah. God forbid you get lost in the fugue in the fifth, fifth suite. But... Um, Anyway, I kept playing and the heat was off at that point. I was like, hey, this feels pretty good. I played the best I'd ever played in my life at that point. And, and I won. And uh, that one of the judges came up to, to me and said, we, we really admired how you handled that memory slip. I mean, that was a, a, a real sign of, of uh, I can't remember what the word he used. But well, it, it galvanized like, you, didn't like it? Ele- yeah. Elegance. Mm. or something the way you elegantly handled that uh and i i I didn't try i just just kept going you know it's either i can take this for this side i almost did a yogi berra when you reach a fork (laughs) in the road take it uh (laughs) i could go left or i could go right so i i think i chose the right the right direction but um and like in in la and detroit anytime that i i played i didn't care one whit about what anyone thought but me and that is the right, that is the right emotional landscape to enter an audition. But that's also something that you, often you have to earn. Uh, and also, I've always I've found that that sometimes you do your very best performing when you're absolutely miserable on stage. Mm-hmm. So, so there's no real reliable pattern, you know, at least in my life. Uh, well, I but, sense uh, from you, Bob, and uh, from the time I've known you, that um, you you sound like somebody who kind of oscillates between. Those two extremes of of caring intensely and not giving a damn. And it seems to be working out pretty well for you. 
Well, I think vulnerability is something that, that people don't ever like to admit. And, uh, but without it, without vulnerability, without fear, without, you know, risk, mm -hmm. you can't experience the other side. You cannot experience those, those highs, um, that you get, um, from a really satisfying, incredible, uh, connected performance, uh, or a, a realization of, of a, of a work, mm -hmm. um, so you, you're putting yourself out there completely, completely, not pretending to be anybody but yourself. But uh, I mean, at least that's how I, I see I see myself and my role as a, as a musician in general, regardless of whether I'm playing chamber music or I'm playing a recital or concerto or, or leading my section. Uh, I or if I'm sitting in the back of the section, like if I ask a conductor, like, can I, can I sit in, you know, if, uh, after the concerto and they say, sure, sure. I'm, you know, I know my place. I know exactly what to do and what not to do. So I'm a good soldier too. Um, so you have to know what, what role you're playing at any given point. And chamber music is what teaches you that very well. So, because you have to be a leader at times, you have to be a supporter. You have to frame and elevate others and cellists, we don't get we don't get to we don't get to be in the spotlight as much as we'd like. So one one way that we can spotlight ourselves is by being great, the best supporting actor or actress. You know, it's uh, I, I think uh, that that is a skill that takes a good deal of maturity, I think, to to develop and, um, you know, admitting that that it's it's OK that you're not the loudest person in the group or, Oh, I can't hear the cello. It's like, okay, well I'll sit this one out. Did you notice something missing? <laughs> I think composers knew, they know, they, they knew uh, how to write f for strings. You know, besides they held the instrument without the end pin back then. So I can't imagine the, the low decibel level level. Anyway, uh, what am I, I'm for, again, meandering. and then Roberts, came the yeah. pandemic on top of all of this. I mean, we're recording this in, in January of, of 21. Um, and you and your colleagues in, in LA, uh, you must be trying to manage something. I mean, can you enlighten us a little bit on, on well, how that's we've going? done, we've done very little. Uh, it's, it's not because the orchestra doesn't, the, the administration doesn't, doesn't want to, I mean, they, they have been working their tails off to present as much content and to, you know, they're working just crazy hours behind the scenes. Uh, has there been any activity? Any th there has been, there has been, uh, anytime that Gustavo, uh, Dudamel is in town, we have been doing like, um, captures out at the bowl, the Hollywood bowl. And when it's been warm enough, actually, what, some that, of the what evenings, does that mean? Is that is that filming out there? Is that what yes, saying? they've been doing some some filming mm -hmm. that, that's that's been presented on mainly on the website. And Gustavo started his own, um, uh, I guess, like a radio broadcast from from home. Uh, I honestly, I I have been so like sort of emotionally detached from everything. I've I've thought to myself, well, what's Plan B? Don't know what that is. Got to figure that out. And tried to be as assertive in that direction as, as possible. Uh, and I, yeah, the, the orchestra has done some activities and we've, we've recorded, uh, you know, works, uh, a lot of works by, uh, by people of color and, and, uh, 
um, a lot of a lot of women composers. We did a we recorded the uh, Fanny Mendelssohn String Quartet, an excellent mm. piece, just a super super piece, very difficult too. The romance from that is uh, we recorded that in Disney Hall. We were the first, I think, group to record there or do anything in there because they had they had shuttered it. Um, no one was allowed in. I even had, I had to make an appointment to go go check on the orchestra Strad cello that's in my locker. I'm not playing it right now. I feel like it's too much of a too much of a, a responsibility and a liability to be carrying that thing around. Um, so um, the the only the only things we've been doing have been confined basically to the Hollywood Bowl because of the ability to distance and um, they're they've spared no expense in the filming. It's like, it's truly like Hollywood level mm-hmm. uh, cinematography. It's incredible what they can do with drones and, and the camera crews and everything. Oh my goodness. And, that uh, sounds incredibly impressive. It, it is. I, I'm, I, you know, hats off to our, our administration for that. And, uh, and to, to Gustavo, all the planning that goes into that has, has got to be enormously, you know, yeah. uh, draining and yet satisfying when you get a good result. But we are at the mercy of, you know, local magistrates. You know, we, Eric Garcetti, our mayor, if he says that, you know, we can't, you know, have any gatherings of more than 50 people or 40 mm-hmm. people or whatever it is, we can't. I mean, there's no, there's, there's nothing we can do. So, you know, we, uh, mm-hmm. we've had to endure our, our share of, of cuts and, and uh, you know, um, everybody's suffering, everyone. So, Bob, you tell me about all of these wonderful influences you've had in your life. And from a very early age, uh, le- learning with uh, Leonard Rose, or certainly coming under the influence of Leonard Rose, and your, your first teacher as well. Um, do you do teaching yourself? And, and do you, do you um, feel the responsibility to pass on some of these wonderful experiences you've had? Um, I, I don't f- feel the... Uh, um sort of i don't know specter of you know you you'd you'd better share this or else uh type of thing because i i do think it's important to pass down uh knowledge and uh i part of me does feel a sense of duty in in doing so but it's also i think even a stronger or as strong a sense of duty in helping a, a, a student really find themselves find their way and harness what's special about them and u- unique indeed about about them and yes I, do, I have done a significant amount of teaching I haven't made a career out of it uh, it's always been sort of a uh, um, an endeavor that's you know ancillary something that's on, on the side of what I do and uh, I I have a slight but I should say quite an unusual teaching style. I mean, my lessons are really long and uh, too long. <laughs> I don't know how to, how to pull the plug or say, okay, it's over. Uh, because I, I, I give so much of myself when I teach. And uh, I, that's one of the reasons why I haven't made, made my career as a teacher, like hanging my shingle as a teacher per se. Um, because um it just it takes everything out of me now i i get a lot back from teaching as well and uh the happiest moments for me are when i'll get an email or a letter or a phone call 
months after I've worked with a student, maybe even once it could have been somebody that I worked with uh, a, a, for a number of weeks or, or even years. And I'll get a letter that a message that says, I finally get it. What you were trying to teach me all these years, you know, it's like you can take a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. It's like, I've got the horse's head down in the water, like waterboarding the poor horse. It's like, but the horse has to be thirsty or has to know it's thirsty. So I can't, I, I don't have that sort of wow quality as a teacher where like you'll, you'll go to the master class and a teacher will adjust this, 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 and this, and this. And I've seen Starker do it. He did it to me actually. And the result will be like magic. And I, I'm not like that. Like I might say something that months later will trigger something big in the student. And they come back to me and say, I, I want to play for you again because now I, I get it. Like I now I am, I understand what you're trying to tell me. Like it's all come together. And that's, that's the greatest gift as a, as a teacher is to see and hear that. And then feel that, that gratitude, uh, coming back and know that I, I have done, you know, performed a, a good act. Like I, uh, something that, that will, will keep another link in the chain strong. And it is important to, it is important to study dead cellists. <laughs> There's not enough of that. The young people, they don't, they don't know Fournier. They don't know Casals. They, I mean, they might know Rostropovich, but they, they they don't know Gendron. They don't know. And now everything is on YouTube. It's absolutely incredible, you know. And, uh, I, you know, there, there are a lot of great living cellists, true. But there's arguably a host of, of more diverse and, and I would say like even pungent, pungently so, personalities. You know, uh, the difference between Fournier and Starker. For example, they they both represent a certain tradition that is just magnificent and important. But you couldn't find two artists that sound more different after two notes. You know exactly who nowadays. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, nowadays takes a little more than two notes. Often takes two notes and a photograph. (laughs) And that's the same with orchestras, isn't it? Uh, and and, yeah, and because of the the, the <laughs> pervasiveness of, of recordings and and now the the intensity of of the internet, um, orchestras are, are, are merging into one sort of sound and very few stand out. Whereas you listen to recordings that's, of that's the era so of um, Fournier, if you listen uh, as you alluded to to Fournier playing a concerto with a French orchestra on YouTube, you know that's a French orchestra. You know that that famous recording of the Lalo and the Sansons with the Lamoureux orchestra. That that, I mean, it sounds fr- like it's from another planet, where only Gallic people are allowed to inhabit. You know, it's it's a it is a very specific and beautiful sound. Like I, uh, I, I know every nuance of that recording, every single nuance. I mean, any Fournier recording. He's my favorite. So. Uh, I, uh, Did you ever hear him live? No I, I, mm. no, I never got to. I sent him a fan letter when I was 11 years old. I found his address in the who's who of international mm-hmm. musicians. Mm-hmm. And I just decided to write him a letter. And three months later, guess who got a letter back from Pierre Fournier? Lovely. I did. 
Yeah. And we were, I wouldn't say we were pen pals, but he wrote to me several times and he did invite me to study with him. Uh, I had sent him a cassette tape and uh, I'd even attempted to write some things in French with him and I, it never went anywhere, but, uh, well, that was definitely before Google Translator, wasn't it? So that's, oh, I know, you know, I, I was hopeless. Like I was so, even at a young age, I was just besotted with Mm. his, his, his playing to me. There's like the, the Holy Trinity of, of great cello sound. And it's, it's, uh, Fournier, Rostropovich, Starker. I mean, those three are, are my sort of Holy Trinity. I mean, of course there are so many in that pantheon, but, to me, those were like that's like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit right there. I, I, I uh, and I know I know that my the name Pablo Casals was not there. Maybe he's the maybe he's the one who created God. <laughs> I don't know, but you know what I mean. It's like it's so hard to if you if I had a gun to my back, yeah, I would say those three. But you know, the influences like like Greenhouse and uh, and uh, and Joseph Silverstein. Some of these people I, I played with, and Silverstein I, I got to play with quite a bit. And I was so fortunate to be next to that violin sound, which you wanted to eat. You wanted to, you wanted to sleep with it. You wanted to eat it and drink it and be it. That that type of sound that is almost extinct now. You know. Well, there you are, Bob. That brings me back to to where we started with this teaching lark, isn't it? You know, you're you're harking back to eras of sound and of an approach to the instrument that is in danger of, of being lost. And you shared that and you've appreciated that. And and you're enthusing people of a, of a younger age by that. You said that some people have heard Rostropovich, they haven't heard Casals, this sort of thing. And you're enthusing them with um, with your own enthusiasm and and, uh, and energies. But the, the priorities have changed, I think. Um, a lot of it, there's so much focus on, you know, this quote unquote technical perfection, which doesn't exist. You know, I mean, yeah, you can chase it as much as you want, but you're more apt to play more perfectly if you are going after a musical message versus like just trying to play digitally, um, accurately. And, uh, so anyway, that, so. I would say that that would be maybe my <laughs> measly contribution to the to the world of teaching. But I I do I do enjoy it. I love it, and I look I wouldn't do it if I didn't get anything out of it. It's no, a bit of a yeah, vamp yeah. the vampire. Yeah. Well, all great teachers you know? say that, don't they? So. They're 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 um, mature enough to to realize that they're learning as much as they're imparting, and uh, because it it causes you to question yourself. When I try to teach somebody. Uh, conducting, uh, um, you're asking yourself questions that maybe are instinctive to you, and you're you're wondering how to impart them to somebody who's eager to learn. So it's it's a valuable experience. It's a two way street with that. I think you undersell yourself, very... you know, Bob. I I think you're. A, I imagine you're a great oh. teacher. I, I know my value. I just I, I <laughs> I've always been trained to like downplay everything. So I you know. Uh, having been brought up as a very strict Catholic and and all of that, and, yeah, that's another conversation. But uh, <laughs> well, let's see now. Um, so, I, I want to kind of round this out a little bit with um, some meaningful um, uh, probing from from me here, and uh, get something that you maybe haven't contemplated 
uh, too much in the last half hour, but where do you see yourself in the next 10 years? Gosh. I, I used to think about that sort of question a lot, and I would uh, try to come up with my own my own sort of plans and ideals. And invariably, I end up somewhere, I land some, somewhere far different and in so many ways far better than what I imagined. You know, I never imagined that I'd be making a career as a, as a principal cellist. You know, I just, I decided to go, go with it because I was good at it and it was lucrative. And, uh, I, it was more or less a stable, um, career. And I don't ever imagine leaving, uh, my position in, in the LA Phil, or, I mean, if, if I ended up principal in in a different orchestra than, than I would probably end my career. I'd probably die in my chair (laughs) and it wouldn't be a bad thing. I mean, I love, I, I love doing it. I, um, there are certain things about it that, you know, feel like a job, which, uh, you know, is to be expected. You can't, you can't always just be, be your hobby. And, uh, I, I I try to keep it light. You know, it's so, so funny. Like, uh, I'm always the, I, I look at myself when I go to work, I'm like that, that new puppy at the dog park who, who just wants to make friends and everything. I walk in the door and there are about a dozen things that immediately piss me off. <laughs> and it's like, I, I realize that uh, it's at a, on a certain level, you have to punch in and punch out and just treat it like a job and not bring your work home with you. Like I, I never do Boeings at home. I don't even practice my orchestra parts at home. If I have a solo to play and I need to practice it, I show up an hour early to work and I do it there. It's definitely, it's a philosophy that I adopted when I was in Detroit. I started doing all of the admin stuff, anything that I needed to do work related. I did not. Why is that? I don't understand. Because I, I don't want my family to have to deal with any of my work related baggage. And I've made a a very strong and, and strict kind of covenant with myself that I, I, I don't want to identify. I don't want to define myself as my job. Like I, I am, I am more than principal cellist of the, of the LA Philharmonic. I don't want to define myself as just a position in a symphony orchestra. Sure. That's a great, it's a great job. I, I know it's an enviable position and I'm, I am very fortunate and I'm very grateful to be where I am. Uh, and I, I know that I've earned it. And I know how good I am and uh, I know I'm valuable, but I am part of it is that I just, I I want to think about other things when I'm away from work. Like I, I want to be able to compartmentalize. I don't want my life to revolve around a job. I want my life to revolve around my family and things I love and music and poetry and movies and sports and things that I love food. Clearly I love food. (laughs) Trying to, trying to unlove food. I'm, I, I just recently broke up with food by the way. Uh, so how do you break up uh, with food? I mean, you're looking great. You're trying to lose weight. I'm trying, I'm trying. It's, uh, I think really analyzing your, your relationship with food and, and why, why you reach for it when you're uh, maybe not really hungry. You might just be bored or sad or 
it's much, much, much more complicated than that. And it's such a, it always seemed to outfox me, you know, like the reasons. I would always just reach for the food. Now, Bob, for the last uh, hour or so, I've been trying desperately to to um, keep some focus <laughs> and keep this as an interview on track. Good yeah. luck with you. I'm no, um, I failed miserably. I'm such a no, mal. I failed miser- no, miserably, we- um, but you've made this this very fascinating. You keep me on a leash. Uh, no, 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 we've got a puppy we're doing that with. Um, so, you know, I, I want to, to, I mean, bearing in mind that last question was, where do you see yourself in 10 years' time? We ended up talking about weight loss. So... That's the, okay. no, don't I, apologize. I, this is all okay. I see myself. Okay. This, I want to tell you where I see myself. I'm going to see myself. This is a bit more abstract than you answer than you want, but I'm going to be the fittest person I've ever been. I'm going to be crushing it in every way, playing everything. I'm just, uh, I am on my way. And whatever happens professionally, I, it's it's all gravy at that point. Like to me, the most important thing, the, the the biggest brass ring, the biggest prize, is is the the content and what I'm capable of doing is so much more than what I'm doing now. I'm scratching the surface, and I know that there's a lot more in me, and I'm hitting my stride now in my in my fifties, and I feel I feel like. God willing, you know, if I'm alive in 10 years that, and I'm in good health, that I'll be not taking things for granted and meeting life halfway. So I, I think in terms of like, say, material success or attaining a certain station in, in life or perceived kind of uh, fancy schmanciness <laughs> in your career, that's a hundred percent luck. We all know it. And there are so many great artists. Like look at Leopold Godowski. He was a very famous pianist, but he was reputedly the world's greatest pianist, but only in his living room. Mm-hmm. He could, he could do it. He could absolutely crush it with his like paraphrases of operas, all that stuff that he did. He was supposed to be like the most incredible technician. You could turn the piano upside down, but in his living room. That's what I read. Anyway, maybe I've said from Harold Schoenberg's The Great Pianist. So that great sounds about right. Sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way his, his turns of phrase are, are great. I love Harold Schoenberg. They don't make music critics like they used to. Anyway, did I just say well, that out loud? that's a different story. We can, we can um, have a second edition of this. We can talk about that if you like. <laughs> so if, if my career were to correspond to where I see myself personally, then... Who knows? I mean, but the music business is changing. And like I said before, like priorities mm-hmm. are a lot different now. And if the pendulum swings back towards a more content driven versus image or optics driven industry, then I think I'll be in better shape. <laughs> I've got a face for radio. Oh, steering away from that rapidly. Um, I, th- I think... Um... You're going to be disappointed there. I think that um, we're really in dangerous territory with the whole classical music business, which is why I love talking to people who, um, like a lot of the guests I've had on on here, haven't been craving the limelight, but who make an invaluable contribution to the business. 
Uh, I want to um, ask you one last question that maybe comes out of what you've just been saying, which is, uh, what's the one thing you most want to be remembered for when you're gone? Well, um, I think, uh, you say one thing? Oh, yes, only one. It's hard to wrap that up into one. Well, it can be a generalization, but still one thing. I just, I want to be remembered as a, as a good, decent person who cared deeply about, about his family and about his, his art. I want to be remembered as somebody who was flawed, but who had great integrity too. I was human. You know, we're all, we're all ordinary people, all of us, every one of us who have, who have various things. But I think at the end of it, I want, I just want to be remembered as an ordinary guy who was a, a, a good, kind person and who helped people. Uh, whatever whatever form that, that takes, whether it was like they remember a performance or a, uh, or they worked with me, they studied with me, that, that I was somebody who, whether it was leading by example or actually telling them to their face <laughs> what to do, <laughs> how to do it, that I was giving it away. And uh, I just, I want to be remembered as a good person, first and foremost. I mean, I, I can't think, I don't have a, you know, yeah, would I love to win, you know, a Kennedy Center honor or, you know, I, yeah, God, I'd love to be king and tyrant of the world. But come on, you know, there's the the good stuff is, is the stuff that you that you refer to, the stuff that's behind the scenes, the the meaningful stuff, the the cogs and 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 the the, the gears and everything that that goes into making something worthwhile, worth doing. Um, I don't know if that sums it up. It's I know it's complicated, but uh, well, Bob, what can I say other than I should have known that when I asked you a simple question and hope for <laughs> Good a succinct and simple answer, <laughs> I get ten of them at least. Okay, but I, I have want to, say, to be remembered as a good guy. As a good guy. As a good guy. That's, he was well, a good know, guy. Right. He was a good fella. <laughs> it's the right answer. You know it is. So I want to say at this point, Robert Domain, cellist extraordinaire, thank you so much for spending this time with me and letting us all into your hive mind. Maestro, Take care, Bob. thank you so, so, so much for having me and uh, letting me letting me chew chew as much fat as I can possibly get in my mouth here. The one and only Robert Demain. I do appreciate all your feedback. You can find me on Facebook and I'm very open to suggestions for people you might think I should interview. Next time, my guest will be Nancy Laterno, the co-founder and CEO of Mainly Mozart in San Diego, a true force of nature and an articulate and intelligent voice for good in the classical music world. 
I'm Andrew Constantine, and you have been listening to A Stick with a Point.